I'm glad to be back. I was gone for a whole Sunday, and uh, I like to only give you one Sunday off. That way you realize that, uh, hey, you really need me around. Uh, get two, and you'll start realizing that people are better at this than I am, and so I, uh, I like to think you, make you think you need me. So um, good to be back. We had a great Christmas. We spent a little time with family. My kids are at a really fun age. They're 10 and 7. That means we can do things without them collapsing or melting down, and so that was super awesome. I made it already. Oh, do you want to make it again? Oh, if you have kids. I'm sorry, you're like, make me ask. Children. If you've got young children, Stephanie is going to take them from you. That was my poor choice. One, two, three. Good. Okay, good. She's going down there. Great. I am on the game. One Sunday off, fall apart. So uh, anyway, um, it's going to be back. My kids are really fun ages. They're uh, 10 and 7. They can do things without melting down. It makes Christmas and stuff like that really fun. We road trip to Texas to see some relatives and in-laws and uh, family, and that was is great. But it's good to be back. We're excited to be back. 2013 really is going to be a, a big year for this little church. Um, not just because we, we, we want to grow, we want to do that, because we want to live who we believe that God's calling us to be. And we believe that we have some exciting things at our foot, at, kind of at our footsteps, and we're, we're ready to embark on this journey together. And so it's going to be a great, great year. And we're going to be talking a lot about it next week, but we're really excited about what God is doing. So we're going to invite everybody into this journey with us. Now, we've been working through the book of Philippians for nine weeks. So nine weeks we have uh, kind of been journeying the book of Philippians. And I know it's been several weeks. We had a Christmas service and then Brad Bandy was here last week. And so we've skipped a few weeks. But I don't think I'm going to backtrack and, and kind of catch everybody up to speed. I think I'm just going to pick up where we left off. And along the way, hopefully, you'll, you'll kind of remember some of those things that we've talked about. Because if we don't, if we spend a lot of time backtracking and all those kind of things, we're never going to finish. And I'm going to try and do something unprecedented today. I'm going to actually try and cover 12 verses. All right. Now, this is 11 more than we've been doing at a time. And so the reason I'm going to do this is because if we started doing the math, if we don't, like Jesus will come back and we will still be in Philippians. And he'll be like, I tried to wait, but you guys were taking forever. So we are going to actually try and speed things up a little bit. And this week does this really well because Paul's going to kind of capture what he's done through the first two chapters and kind of live it out and or, or play it out in examples of two people that sort of embody what he's talked about. Now, if you remember, a lot of what Paul's talking about is this call for the church, this gathered group of believers, to live in humility and unity, to have a like mind and a like mission and a like heartbeat. And we really talked about that mission and heartbeat is being able to live and love and think like Jesus. And so Paul is encouraging the church to live in this sort of united way and not unity for the sake of unity, but united in mission and to live with humility, to live in and as community. And that's going to be the hallmark of really what he's going to sum up chapter 2 with as he gives us two examples of a gentleman by Timothy who we know a little bit about and a gentleman by the name of Epaphroditus who we're going to learn about as examples of what unity and humility look like. And then we're going to unpack it a little bit differently this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 19. Uh, there should be one right there around you somewhere in the general vicinity of where you are. You can follow along with me. I love it when you read along with me so you know that I'm making this stuff up. It's right there in front of you. Plus, I'd much rather have you wrestle with Scripture than with the things I say about Scripture. So uh, that is, is sort of our heartbeat. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, before we open God's Word together, let's pray. God, it is good to be back in this place. It's good to be with this family, with these people. God, I pray that you would teach our hearts this morning, that you would allow your word to penetrate us, maybe in a unique way, maybe in a new way. God, that you would uh, teach us something about yourself that would uh, kind of revolutionize our hearts. Um, take a moment and just pray in your own heart. Just ask God to move in you, to show you something, to teach you something this morning. Just whisper that in your own heart.
Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We say this every week, but be in the habit of praying for other people. Even if it's small, just, just whisper, Lord, move in this person. God, do something in this person's life. Even if you don't know their name, in front of you, behind you, just pray for them. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would let us eavesdrop on an amazing conversation that's happening and that you might teach us through the middle of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter two, I'm gonna read the whole thing. And I did a horrible job reading at the 930 service. I'm gonna try it this service and see what happens. So we're gonna read the whole thing and then I'll just kind of unpack it as we go. But this is Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 19 down through verse 30. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him, for he takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come, will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, from whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. A lot of text, but let me give you a little bit of life to it, okay? Because Paul's kind of, of wrapping up this. If you remember a few weeks ago, Paul was challenging the Philippians to work out their salvation. And we spent a lot of time talking about what that looked like and how that is really kind of a, kind of a challenge to grow into uh, your salvation, to mature in Christ, to never kind of be content with where we are, but say, God, I want to know you more. I want to mature. I want to grow. We talked about those words, justification, sanctification, and how growing and maturing in Christ is that word sanctification. I want to be made holy. God, my growth in Christ is an ongoing thing. And Paul's reminding the church, he's saying, listen, I want you to grow, and I want you to mature. And in order to do this, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. But Paul couldn't be with him because you remember he's writing this letter from prison in Rome. He's under house arrest. And so Paul's plan, he develops a little plan to help the Philippians, to spend time with them. But he can't go himself. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. Because I can't go, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And Timothy was the next most logical choice because Paul had discipled Timothy. He had raised him. He uses a metaphor like a father and a son. He cared for Timothy. And Timothy cared about the things that Paul cared about. And he, the next logical choice was to send someone whose heartbeat was the same as mine, that loves you the same way that I loved you. And the Philippians knew Timothy well. He'd been there at least three times, invested time in them, spent time with them. So it was a logical choice that if Paul can't go, Timothy would go. And so Paul's plan, instead of going himself, was to go ahead and send Timothy. Paul knew that eventually, or believed that eventually, he would be released from prison and could go himself. But until that time came, he would send Timothy. But Timothy was kind of helping him right now, and he needed Timothy until the trial was over. So he said, "Here's a, actually, I'm going to send you someone before I even send Timothy to you. I'm going to send you back this guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And what we know about this gentleman is that he was sent originally from the Philippian church to bring a financial gift to Paul while Paul was in prison in Rome. 
So the Philippian church, 600 miles down the Ignatian Way, all the way on the east kind of side of the known world, they send this gentleman with a financial offering to walk 600 miles to Rome to find Paul and bless him and take care of his needs. And so what Paul says is, I'm going to return him to you because I know that you've heard that he was ill. Now, you got to remember, word travels very slowly back in those days, right? It wasn't like you just call someone or whatever. I mean, you know, to get a letter to someone 600 miles away would take weeks or months. And what had happened was somewhere along this journey, when Epaphroditus was on his way to bless Paul with this financial gift, because Paul was actually renting his own house under house arrest in Rome, they brought him a financial gift. On his way, Epaphroditus gets really ill. He gets sick and he almost dies. And so word gets back to the Philippians that, that Epaphroditus was sick and that he was dying. But since then, he's gotten well. But the Philippians have no idea. And it's causing anxiety and Epaphroditus, he's worried because he's going, they don't know that I'm actually doing okay. And Paul hated to see him having this anxiety. And so he said, listen, I love this guy. He's a fellow brother. He's a soldier. He's the caretaker of my needs. But I'm going to send him back to you so that you might be able to rejoice. And when he comes, rejoice and honor men like him because he's risked his life for the Lord. So all that text to kind of say this, Paul's plan is that I believe that God's going to release me from prison. I'm going to visit you and I'm going to help you grow and I'm going to invest in you. But until I can do that, I'm going to send Timothy. And until I can send Timothy, I'm going to send back to you Epaphroditus. And these two gentlemen are examples of the unity and the humility that I've been talking about. And in fact, he, he refers to Timothy as someone that he has no one like him because he has a genuine care and love for the welfare of the Philippians. And he even calls Epaphroditus. He says, He's a fellow soldier and worker and caretaker of my needs. Deep love. And I'm going to send these guys back to you. And that is how chapter 2 ends. Chapter 2 ends. A few days ago, I was sitting at a local coffee shop, and I was attempting to think through how I was going to approach this text. And I overheard um, a father and a daughter having a conversation. It was an intense one. And I say overheard, I mean kind of listened in and eavesdropped intentionally. And they were loud, and it was hard not to hear. Plus, I just do that anyway. And so I was sitting there, and they were engaging. And actually, she was really engaging. She was probably in her 20s, and he was a little bit older, and she was just railing on and on about how angry she was at mom. I mean, just story after story about how mom had ruined Christmas and that she was done with her and not reconciling, and that relationship was broken. She was never going back. And the dad just sat there, and he listened. And I don't know anything about the circumstance. I don't know if they were married or or, or divorced or any of those kind of things. I just know that, that daughter was angry, and I assume they're still together because they're talking about Christmas, but daughter was angry and frustrated and hurt and, and just done, done. <clears throat> so the dad's sitting there, and he's drinking his coffee, and, and I'm listening in, and, and I'm waiting to see how he kind of responds because for story after story, for 10, 15 minutes, she just went on angry. And then finally she says this. She goes, that's it. <clears throat> I'm done. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to try and make amends or reconcile. The dad sat there for a while. And uh, he looked up at her and he said, will you try one more time, please? And her response was this. She goes, if I do, what's in it for me? And he sat there for a long time. And I was like about to come out of my chair because if he was going to say something, I was, which was going to end up being not 
good choice, but that's usually how I end up anyway. So I just was sitting there because I wanted, first of all, I wanted to hear what he had to say because I was wrestling with some similar things, thinking about just being tired of things. And we've probably all been in those places where we've given and we've given and we've given, and now we're just empty and tired of giving. And I was waiting to hear what he said to her because you want him to just reach over there and talk some sense into her, right? And, And at the same time, I wanted his response to be something that was great, loving, and he looked at her after a while. I mean, we sat there for, he sat there for a good long while. And he looked at her and he said, what's in it for you? Humility? And the hope that in humility, you might realize that that question is poisoning your heart. And I was writing as fast as I could, right? Because I'm just going, oh, it's so good. Because I was feeling the same thing, that question, the very driving question of, of, of what's in it for me. He was saying that it's the poisoning of your own heart. And they went on to talk and, and you know, kind of just kind of, she went on and on. I don't know how everything ended up. They left. <clears throat> and I was thinking to myself, man, how often I've sat in situations and God has taught me things without my knowing. So here I am eavesdropping into this conversation between this very personal conversation between a father and his daughter, right? And God is speaking to my heart. Because it wasn't about her and him and their mom. It was about God saying to me about the selfish nature of what I do and how I am and how it's poisoning my own life. And I thought for a moment, as I looked down at this text, and I was looking at my Bible, and I thought, you know, this is exactly what we're doing. We're eavesdropping in on an incredibly personal conversation. Now, God, in all of his majestic, infinite wisdom, knew that some 2,000 years ago, we would be gleaning and learning, and this would be what we were being used as scripture and as tools. But Paul had no idea Paul was sitting there writing a letter to some people that he loved. He was pouring his heart out. He was not writing it for us. He was writing it for the Philippians. And in a sense, we are eavesdropping in on this conversation that they're having. And God is teaching us, right? Very similar. So I thought this morning what I would do is take a little bit different approach. Because the easier approach, or not the easier approach, but the, the kind of obvious approach would be to, to look at this text and, and talk about Timothy and talk about Epaphroditus and how they're pictures of friendship and loyalty and how we need to be like them and lift up some characteristics in them. And then, I mean, that'd be what would naturally come out of this text as a preacher if you just kind of looked at it. But God was doing something different in me. I, was e- I felt like I was eavesdropping. And he was showing me different things about my own life through each one of these men, these gentlemen. And so I thought what I'd do today is instead of doing that, I'd let you eavesdrop on what God was teaching me. I don't know if these things are God's going to speak to you, but my hope is that you wrestle with the text and you might hear them. And they're not going to be earth change, kind of earth-rattling or changing, and you're going to go, oh my gosh, most profound thing I've ever heard. But they're simple truths that God was speaking to my heart about who I want to be. And as I look at this sort of new year and who I feel called to be and want to be as a, as a follower of Christ, God was speaking to my heart as I was watching this interaction unfold with Paul and with Timothy and with Epaphroditus. So I'm going to let you in on that, and you're going to get to eavesdrop on what God was teaching me as I was eavesdropping on what Paul is doing in this letter. And I've learned something from each of these three guys. <clears throat> but the first thing I learned was from, from Paul. And, and here's what I learned, that I want to be a person that shares what blesses me. Okay, so I want to be a person that shares what blesses me. Because here's what's going on with Paul. Paul is in Rome. And he's in prison. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are blessings to him. They are taking care of his needs. They are companionship. They are partners. They are, as Paul calls, fellow soldiers, workers, caretakers. 
They are incredible blessings. And Paul, being blessed, wants to share those blessings. So he says to the Philippians, I'm going to give you, right, what's been blessing me so much. I'm going to return Epaphroditus to you, a 600-mile journey. I'm going to send him so that you can rejoice and be excited that he's well. Right? Paul could have told him in a letter, because I want to send him to you so that you can be blessed the way that I've been blessed. I want to send Timothy to you. Because I want you to be blessed the way that Timothy blesses me. I want you to grow in your relationship with Christ enough that you get to experience, right, what's been the blessing to me. Now, when I say that I want to share what blesses me, I think most of us would say, well, yeah, that's all of us. I mean, we want to share what blesses us. But let me tell you something. That's not really my natural inclination. What I'm naturally inclined to is to share with you, and I'm not just talking about you, but with people when I use that, share with people or with you what blesses me when I'm done with it, when I've already extracted all that I need to or that I've learned to live without it or with it and it's over, right? And once I've gleaned what I need to from it, then I want to share my blessing. Right? Think about the way you are with things, your resources, whatever. We know people that have, you know, they're cold. And so we want to we not throw away our clothes. So when we're done with our old clothes, we take them and we give them away. I want to bless you when I'm done with it. Right? This is how we naturally think, or at least how I naturally think. So when God blesses me with something, my natural inclination is to use it and be grateful beyond measure. And then when I'm done with it, pass it along to somebody else. But Paul's doing something very different here. Paul's actually sharing blessing in the middle of blessing while it's still good. A few years ago when we were in Africa, we were traveling amongst these little churches out in the bush. I mean, literally bush, trails, thatched roof huts, no electricity, no running water, none of those kind of things. And we would go out to these little villages and we would preach on this particular Sunday. And they split up our group and we all went to different places. And I, I went to this church way, I mean, hours and hours, a uh, three-and-a-half-hour drive down these crazy little roads um, to this church, this little church. And, and I was supposed to preach when I got there and um, got there. And, and, of course, nobody really has anything. I mean, they don't have, you know, cars and those kind of things. They don't have, they share what they have. And, and so everybody walks to church, and they walk two miles, three miles to get to church on a Sunday morning. And I got there. And, and I was, you know, kind of set to preach, and the pastor was doing his thing, and they did an offering, and the plate went by, and, and I noticed that people were putting things in a plate, but like big things, like a sack, you know, or, uh, you know, a bundle or whatever, and the plate was giant as they were passing. It was piled with things, and it wasn't money, but people were giving what they had. Some lady had wrapped up two ears of corn, you know. Um, they were giving grain. They were giving things they had. That was their offering, and so I was watching that go by, and I was kind of moved by kind of this simplicity but the powerful nature of what that might be, you know. Um, if you came and shoved two ears of corn in that box back there, I wouldn't know what to do with that. I, mean, I don't know, corn? That's great. But, I mean, at that moment, they, they used it. They gave it away. At the end of that service, they gave it to people that had need. But at the very end of service, uh, a gentleman came in late, um, and service is long, and so he came in late. And he walked up to the front, and he whispered to the pastor, I'd like to make an announcement. And they're talking in Atesso, and so, you know, I don't speak that, uh, barely speak English well. And so they were speaking to Atesso, and I'm kind of eavesdropping. The pastor's going to translate just for me, because I'm the only English speaker there. And so they're translating everything for my benefit, which is very nice. And so they're talking to Atesso, and the pastor leans over, and he goes, this guy's got an announcement he wants to make. Is that okay? And I was done preaching. I was like, I mean, sure, why not? And so he stands up, and he says, I, I want to tell the church something. I have been blessed. Uh, with a motorcycle. My uncle died, and he left me 
his motorcycle. And this has been a tremendous blessing for me because I've been able to drive into Mbale, which was the big city, and find work. And he said, I have been blessed by this motorcycle. It's allowed me to go in and get work. And he said, I want to give it to the church to bless you all. And the pastor looks at him. He says, brother, he says, you know, are you done with this motorcycle, right? Are you done? Does it still run? And he said, he said, of course it still runs. And no, I'm not done with it. But I don't want to use it all before it breaks. And they knew out there that in the bush and in the dirt, things broke down quickly. And he says, I don't want to use it before it breaks. So I'm giving it to the church for you all to use. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And it wasn't until months later that I realized how powerful that was. <clears throat> that's a tremendous blessing. It doesn't make any sense to us to think, oh, a motorcycle. I mean, it is huge. Transportation meant work. It meant money. It meant life. And here's a guy who had an f- uncle that passed away and left it to him. And he could have been like, man, I've been blessed like crazy. And I'm going to give people rides. And I'm going to be like the ride man. And people are going to, and I'll be able to do this and really bless people. But what he said was that he wanted the church to be blessed like he was. So he gave it to him. He could have still used it. He could have changed the life for his family, but he wanted to share what was blessing him. So he gave it to him. Left the keys right there in the offering plate. Pastor kept it and they used it. I want to be someone that shares blessing, my blessing in the middle of blessing. I don't want to wait till my life's used up and then pass things along. That's what Paul's engaging in. Something that God was teaching me through Timothy. Listen to how Paul describes Timothy. Paul says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. I have been cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him, like Timothy. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. As I was reading this text, I realized that I want to be a person that genuinely cares about you and about your welfare. Now, Two words that jump out to there in me. The first one is genuinely, which really just means honestly and sincerely, right? And then welfare, which really is about uh, well-being and carries with it a connotation of, of happiness and joy and like light, good life. Not just to be like, hope your needs are covered, but like I want you to live in abundance with joy, right? So what he's saying is this is how Timothy lives. He has a genuine interest in you and your well-being. And I was looking at this going... I want to be someone that has a genuine, a deep and sincere and honest kind of desire and care for you and your well-being. Now, for a lot of us, you're saying, well, I mean, yeah, we all do that. I mean, you know, you know I know you care about me, and I know I care about you, and we care about each other. And, and it's one thing to say we care about each other. It really is. But it's another thing to be moved to action. So Paul says, Timothy... I love the Philippian church so much that I want to send you, and I know you love them so much that I want to send you 600 miles by foot to go tell them that you love them. I am too busy to call my mom. Yet Timothy will walk 600 miles to tell the Philippians that he loves them. Genuine care moves to action. We do so much with words, and I do so much with my words, but very seldom is my caring moved me to action. And it's not just about you people, right? But it's about people, bigger picture. We all care about things, right? I mean, I care about hunger. But did you know that one in five children here in the state of Oklahoma will go to bed hungry tonight? I mean, I care. It's not really moved to action. I mean, I care about homelessness, right? But there will be 1,200 people tonight in our city that are homeless. 
half of which will be sleeping outside, the others will find refuge in a shelter. I mean, I care, but I mean, I'm not moved to action. I mean, I care about human trafficking and big things like that. Do you know that Oklahoma City is the largest corridor in the United States for human sex and labor trafficking? And then just a few years ago, the FBI did a raid and rescued 13 girls between the ages of 12 and 15 that were being used in a prostitution ring at a truck stops in Oklahoma City. And I care. So that I'm cared to action. And we use the excuse, I don't know what to do. I mean, I care about slavery, right? Did you know that there are more than 27 million slaves worldwide? And not like slavery, like, oh, indentured servant, like we soft sell it, like real slavery, people being held against their will and not paid at all which is far more than any other point in time in history. 27 million. I mean, I care, but I'm not moved to action. I want to be someone who genuinely cares, and that moves me to action. About those giant things and about the small things. How many times have you looked at yourself and said, I should call him, or I should call her, or I should go by and see him, and the next thing you'll wake up and it's seven months down the road, Timothy was someone that would walk 600 miles to tell some people that he loved them and do it with incredible joy. I want to genuinely care about you and your well-being. Then finally, what I pick up from Epaphroditus, which is, I don't know, it really comes in the last section of that text. When Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you, here's what I want you to do, church. I want you to welcome him in with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up to help for the help that you could not give me. I want to risk a little. My Christian life is cushy. It's never cost me anything. I don't risk anything. I make decisions once I already know the outcome, usually. Most of us do. We don't risk in our, in our work life. We don't risk in our financial life. We don't risk in our giving life. We don't risk in our spiritual life. We surely don't risk in our emotional life. We don't risk. We want to get just close enough to Jesus to see him and say, man, that is cool, but not actually have him call my name. Because we believe in a gospel where God doesn't call me to do anything that I don't want to do or don't know the answer to. But if you read scripture, God is constantly calling people to risk for him without explanation. Start with Abraham, work your way down through Moses and Jonah and Ezra and Nehemiah and David Go all the way through the disciples. Find anyone you want to. And I guarantee you, when you look in Scripture, you will see God calling someone to risk for him. Yet for some reason, we don't want to risk. And not risk for the sake of risk, but risk for the sake of obedience. We want to live safe lives and on our terms. But the gospel calls us to risk. This guy voluntarily walked from Philippi to Rome to take an envelope full of money. Right, which was probably not the safest thing to travel with in those days, to walk it to Paul to say, we love you. And along the way, guess what? He risked his life. He got sick and nearly died. And Paul says, welcome him back and honor him because he risked for the sake of the gospel. What are you risking? I mean, honestly, what, what are you risking for the Lord? God, I want to risk emotional rejection. I want to I risk uh, not knowing the answer. I, I don't know, but I want to be a person that risks a little. When we were in China a few years ago, or a year ago, we um, had the privilege of going to this house church that was run by this guy by the name of Samuel Lamb. And you can Google him, I'll spare you a lot of the details. He's the most influential house church leader in all of China, ever. 
1955, he went to prison for the first time. In 1958, he went back for 20 years. 20 years, all because he was a follower of Christ. When he got out of prison in 1978, he went back to the church that he had originally kind of planted, a little house church, and he just began to obediently preach the gospel again. Numbers quickly swelled to 1,000 that were coming and cramming into different services in this little house every single night. The government threatened and threatened and threatened, and then finally they just left him alone because they realized they didn't have power over him, over what he was doing. We were in Guangzhou, and our, uh, the missionaries we went took us to his church. And we went on like a Thursday night, and they have four major services a week. And this house church is, looks a lot like this, actually. It's a house, but it's got a ton of different wings on it. I mean, it's been an apartment complex. It's going to be changing to things. And each room holds about this many people, about maybe about a couple hundred, maybe a little bit more than this. And they are packed in. I mean, we got packed in, and they'd save these seats for us. And we were, I mean... These seats were not made for big people. We were crammed in there, and, and he stands at this little pulpit, right? And they have this tiny old-school video camera that sits on him and these cords that run down to all the other rooms, and they show him on these old TVs, just one old TV set in the front of the room with a crowd of like 200 people packed in. And this old 90-year-old man methodically preaches the gospel from this tiny little pulpit. And each night, a 1,000 people, now they're up to 4,000 people that are crammed into this house as he preaches the gospel and people are saved. And after that service, he got in a little, has a little room down there, and the, our little team, the one with us, went into this little room, and we sat at the table with him. And he told us the stories about prison, and he told us the stories about his uh, oppression with the government, and the persecution, the things that he's gone through, and the people around him that have been killed for their faith in Christ. And somebody said, well, when you got out, a prison, what made you want to go back and preach? It was risky. And his only answer was this. He goes, what was I supposed to do? Not preach? Yes, it's risky. The gospel's risky. We left that night feeling like I had experienced perhaps one of the single greatest kind of... Um, gospel pictures in action that I've ever seen and a reminder that my Christian life has cost me nothing. I mean, that trip we sat with college kids as they pulled the Bibles out from underneath mattresses in locked bedrooms, knowing full well that they could be arrested for even owning one. Sit in these rooms and I realized that my faith has cost me nothing. If anything, it's got me things. I want to be someone that risks a little. I don't know what that means for you. But as I look at this text, what I'm eavesdropping and what I'm listening and what I'm hearing is this, is that I want to be someone, right, who blesses and shares things with people that bless me. That I want to genuinely care about you and your well-being and that I want to live a life that risks. I don't know what 2013 is going to hold for you. I can't pinpoint any of those things. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold for you. I don't know what holds for me. But I know that these are things that we're called to. And as a church, they're things that we want to be. And maybe God is speaking to you to those things. Maybe he's not. But maybe there's something, if you'll just listen, that he's trying to tell your heart. This morning, we're celebrating perhaps the greatest picture of risk ever played out. That God loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to sacrifice his life so that we might have new life in him. That he became sin so that in him we might know God's righteousness. We might become God's righteousness. This table that we celebrate once a month is more than a reminder. It's a proclamation of that truth. 
It's not a habitual thing that we participate in, a ritual of the church. Instead, it's a worshipful proclamation of a God that has given his life so that we could follow him and proclaim that to the world. And on that very night that Jesus was betrayed, and a lot of times we think that Jesus was just betrayed by Judas, but on that very night, Jesus was, all of his disciples ran, every single one of them, and he was left standing alone. On that same night, the night that he would wash their feet and tell them to go and love the world this way, he took this meal with them and gave them something that they could forever use as a proclamation and an example of what the ultimate sacrifice of love looks like. Let's pray.